This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the Attorneys for Freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? Great, man. Coming off a good weekend. I gave a couple of speeches this weekend. One of them was at the Crossroads of the West gun show. It was really great because I our, always love speaking over there. Yeah, no kidding. And, and uh, Maria Alejandra, our, our, the executive director for Live and Let Live Foundation, actually gave a talk there, which was great. I gave a talk after that. You know, I can't resist talking about Live and Let Live. And then on Sunday, I spoke to the uh, Arizona State Convention for the Libertarian Party. Had a good group of people out there. It felt good, you know, to stand up and say, we haven't even kicked off the movement yet. We got 31 different chapters. We're in 19 different countries. They were blown away. And did you introduce these libertarians to the concept of live and let live? What do you think? Man? Of course you what did. What do you think? I pounded them. I bludgeoned them over the head with live and let live. But they were very excited. They recognized that, you know, the libertarian movement was missing some pieces it's not really making the kind of progress we'd like to see in that uh, the live and let live movement has so much more to offer because, you know, it's not just the legal principle, but also that moral principle. And man, when you lead with the moral principle, which you should, the good people of the world, I would say, just really are excited and interested to be uh, just involved. People are just real excited about it. Love it. Well, we got another libertarian with us today who we're going to be introducing to these great concepts. But uh, if you guys want a more in-depth version of what this movement is all about, the live and let live principle, the legal and the moral world, what's it all about? We got a great link you can click right now at the bottom, and uh, it'll be an in-depth discussion talking about what you can expect in this movement and what we're all about. But we want to get right to our guest right now. Today we have Julio Mejia, who is uh, appearing uh, via Zoom from Canada. He's the former director of the Libertarian Movement in Colombia. How you doing today, Julio? Hello. Uh, nice to talking to you. Very happy. Very good. Great to have you, man. Why don't you start by just introducing yourself to the listeners? Yeah, for sure. Well, as you were saying, I was um, one of the co-founders and also the first director for the libertarian movement in Colombia. And also I created this um, think tank was, I, I believe one of the first think tanks in Colombia, the libertarian think tank to uncover um, all the problems that companies and business from all sizes were facing regarding regulation. And, and after that, I came here to live in Canada. I studied a master's degree in international affairs back in Colombia, and I came here to Canada to study another master's degree in criminology and criminal justice policy. And I recently finished the master's degree, and now, well, I'm an independent researcher here in, in Toronto. And uh, what organization do you do independent research for? Well, I did for this company that um, they write financial proposals uh, to get some funding for small businesses. Uh, and well, that's what I'm doing right now. Okay. So you're a libertarian, obviously, and you're well entrenched in the freedom world. So I already know you're going to love what our movement's all about. Mark, I want to see this in real time right now, my friend, since we didn't do our usual summary at the beginning. You just had a little exercise with this uh, this. Uh, little activity that we're doing right now over the weekend with the libertarians. So why don't you give the pitch in the same way to another libertarian here? 
Yeah, you know, what I'd say to you, Julio, is, uh, you know, the libertarians got it right with the principle that the libertarians call the non-aggression principle, which, as you know, uh, prohibits all forms of aggression, right? So it says, <clears throat> uh, if I can make it a little more glamorous, I'll say, thou shalt not initiate force against another person or their property or be involved in fraud or coercion, or do anything that creates a substantial risk of harm to another person. But you know, as I told some of my libertarian friends, this doesn't say anything really about how a person should act other than just they shouldn't be an aggressor. And uh, well, that might be sufficient to get us to a free world, right? Imagine if nobody was being aggressive towards other people, or actually if when they were aggressive, they get punished and taken to jail. And and very importantly, uh, the libertarian position and the live and let live position would apply this rule, not just to every individual, but to every group of every size as well. So not just individuals, but organizations, corporations don't get to violate the principle. Neither does the government. That's very, very important. But you know, the libertarians are missing another huge piece of the puzzle. And we call it the live and let live moral principle. And the way we describe the moral principle is just simply be a good human. You can completely ignore a moral principle, right? You can act, you can be a bad human if you want, as long as you don't violate what we call the legal principle, what the libertarians call the non-aggression principle. And so we break our moral principle out into what we call aspirational values. These include things like open-mindedness, tolerance, voluntary kindness, civility towards other people, a commitment to truth and facts and rational inferences from that truth and justice, and also things like building high levels of trust with other human beings. And we care about this stuff because what we want to do here as sort of live and let livers is we want to optimize human happiness and well-being while minimizing human suffering. And so that's probably the biggest distinction. And, uh, you know, the moral principle for us live and let livers is just as important as the legal principle because we're a peace movement. We're not just a freedom movement. And so I would say that's one of the main distinctions. Another really big distinction is we don't get into discussions with other people about things like what's the size of government. We don't care if you support a big government, a small government, or no government at all, so long as you recognize that the government doesn't get to violate the legal principle uh, at all. And also, we don't argue about capitalism or socialism. We're fine with our socialist friends as long as it's all voluntary. They don't get to force people into their socialist ideas because forcing people into doing anything violates the legal principle with the one exception of forcing them not to be an aggressor. That's it. So we have a much, in some ways, more complex movement because it involves a moral principle that we're pushing, but in some ways, much more simple because our message is really easy. We have a legal principle. We have a moral principle. The legal principle you got to follow will put you in jail if you violate that. The moral principle you can completely ignore, right? You can be intolerant, closed-minded, uncivilized, unkind, all of that. So long as you don't violate the legal principle, you get left alone. But you're not part of our live and let live movement. We're looking for people who are interested in being good humans. And as Maria Alejandra would say, uh, bring out the best version of yourself. We're trying to inspire people to just be better humans. So that's the main distinctions between live and let live and libertarianism. A lot to react there to. What do you think, Julio? 
Oh, that's amazing. Actually, it's very much related to all the problems that we are facing back in Colombia, uh, especially regarding all the war on drugs that we face and all the, not only the stigma that Colombia has with that subject, with that particular subject of drugs, but also all the incentives that are created um, regarding or surrounding the war on drugs. Let's say like as Milton Friedman used to say, like the war on drugs has this uh, very important role in eliminating the small competitors of the market and just reassuring or creating this ideal situation for the big cartels to take on 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 the market so i believe this principle it's it's great the the, the live and let live principle it's great and it, i think it fits quite nicely with all the problems that we are living in colombia because maybe sometimes the solution seems to be that we should um we should people make their own decisions and not trying to enforce or force uh, different decisions on them. So yeah, for sure. I, I love that idea. You know, Julio, in some ways, um, I can't even believe we're still talking about the war on drugs. This seems like, you know, of all the issues, this seems like the easiest one to get through your head. I think people think that if you call for legalization of a substance, that's the same thing as saying, I recommend other people use the substance. We, we got to be smarter than this, right? Just simply calling for something's legalization doesn't mean that you can't also say at the same time, I recommend that you don't do it, even though you have a right to do it, right? So um, maybe you could speak to that. And also one other thing, you might not have the opportunity to have some discussions like Andy and I have, but because we're criminal defense lawyers, we get to sit down and talk to some of these drug dealers um, and some of them are very big time drug dealers. These are, uh, I've represented people in federal court who, who aren't drug users, who are businessmen on a large scale. And what I like to tell people, if you really understand the war on drugs, then you understand why those people, the big drug dealers, are the very first ones to say, I do not want legalization. I want to keep it illegal. What are your thoughts on these points? Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. Um, so I studied criminology too. So, and I also I used to work for the Colombian Army as the International Affairs Advisor. And well, that's a very difficult subject subject for Colombia because, like, the army it's very conservative, but they are pretty aware of all the incentives that the, the war on drugs create. So, the main problem is that the war on drugs. So, our main problem in Colombia, it's cocaine, the market of cocaine. That's the main drug, as you may know, that Colombia exports. And the whole war on drugs create this ideal situation where the prices of this craft thing that it's made in the middle of the jungle where you don't need these big machines or this big technology or very advanced technology, you can actually create this very easy to make product into a very profitable business. And that's the key of the subject, because when you make it illegal, you transfer the prices of this thing made in the middle of the jungle and all the risk of trading with drugs, it's transferred to the price and it creates this artificial inflation of the price and you make it very profitable. And uh, so I totally agree with, with what you were saying. It's, it's incredible that we are still discussing the um, adverse or the unintended consequences of fighting the war on drugs. It's been more than 30 years and 
the problem, the big problem is that, first of all, Colombians are put in the debt and we are fighting the war and we are signing peace agreement after peace agreement with every army, illegal army that is fund, being funded by the, by, by the money of cocaine, that it's only profitable because it's illegal. And if we had the opportunity to legalize it and create an open market, that doesn't mean, as you, as you were saying, that you are forced to do it. No, you can choose to do it. It's your own problem and you have to face the consequences of doing it. But if we had an open market that diminished or decreases the prices, then the business wouldn't be that profitable. And we wouldn't have to face the FARC group, the ELN, then the paramilitary groups and all these different uh, armed groups that are being born in Colombia and try to overthrow the, the, the state and to try to overthrow the rule of law, which is for me one of the main concerns that I have in Colombia right now. Under most of the stats that we have right now available to us, it's pretty easy to identify too that making something illegal doesn't necessarily and rarely does lead to less use of it. The United States of America right now the main cause of adults age 18 to 45 is fentanyl overdoses. This is an illegal, highly punished drug, and uh, that's not stopping people from using it. On the flip side of that, we've had multiple countries, or multiple states, I should say, in the United States that have legalized things like marijuana, and we haven't seen an overall use increase, even a use increase, let alone the crimes associated with it, DUIs, violent crimes, things like that. And now we're experimenting in certain parts of the country with things like mushrooms. Then you take a look at other statistics from Europe. Um, There's been several um, countries in Europe that have legalized things like heroin and other very, very serious drugs. And what they actually found was when you legalize a lot of these things, usage and addiction actually drops at that point. Uh, It removes a lot of, I mean, for some people in the analysis, there might be a social stigma attached to it. That's why they're turning to it. But bottom line is when you remove it from the black market and you make it so that, okay, well, there's no longer a social stigma attached to it. I think people just generally tend to see it more objectively for what it is. It's like, why would I want to put this horrendous chemical in my body? So through all the statistics we have, legalization doesn't even achieve the desired effects of the people making it illegal currently. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I totally agree with what you were saying about the black markets. I think I see that the problem is that you need to throw some light to those markets and you need to see uh, for people to have the opportunity to know what is happening. Like as, as in the United States, in many states of the United States, here in Canada, uh, we have legal marijuana and it's it's totally fine. Now, the last research that I read regarding that subject discovered that actually there was an increase in the consumption of marijuana, but in those ages of people between 40 years old and 50 years old. So the younger people are not trying to try this drug because they are now used to see it in the in the streets and they know what is it about but the problem with putting that drug in the black market or, or to covering this drug under this mysticism of, of of illegal drugs is that sometimes it even make it more attractive it, it makes the drugs more attractive mm-hmm. for people and now what we're seeing here in canada is that consumption is actually decreasing under some ages under people of uh, People under thirties uh, are consuming, consuming, uh, consuming. I'm sorry, less marijuana than before. 
Isn't that interesting? Because one of the main arguments used by folks who are constantly championing to keep everything illegal is they say, think of the children. The children are all going to be drug addicts if we legalize this marijuana. Isn't that interesting? It's totally thinking about, you know, medicinalists certainly isn't our argument because our argument is that competent adults get to put whatever they want in their body that they want. But it's no surprise to me that the increase is in people who are 40, 50, 60 years old, the older crowd, for which the medicinal effects later in life can help and are proven to help in, in numerous studies. So no surprises there at all. I just think that's kind of interesting that the, the narrative crumbles when you take something off the black market. All those talking points from folks who want to keep this stuff in the black market just never pan out. You know, Andy, I'm really glad you made that point that you just made. And it went by kind of quick because I was going to chime in and just tell you guys how uncomfortable I am with this conversation. You know, I wrote an article a while back entitled, Stop Arguing Marijuana is Not Harmful. This doesn't mean I think it is harmful. What it does mean is that's not our argument, right? It doesn't matter to me. If use is going up, what that means is more free people have decided for themselves they want to use it. Why do we come? Why would we come to the table with a value judgment about what other people should do? I mean, we could try to convince them all we like. That's fine. But the argument that we're making is not that any of these drugs are not harmful. Maybe some of them are. I don't know. Lots of things are harmful. What we are saying is that you get to decide as the competent adult owner of your own body what you put in it. So it doesn't really matter to me. I think it's nice that in terms of the maybe really bad drugs that um, usage is going down. But, you know, you might feel the same way about the percentage of people who drive motorcycles without helmets. If the use is going down, uh, more people wearing their helmet, that's great. But they have a right to decide for themselves so long as they take the consequences, right? So um, I agree with everything you said except one thing that I completely disagree with you on, which is... Of course there should be value judgments about these things. Of course, if we see somebody doing destruction to their own body and everything through horrendous drug use, there should be a value judgment. But we don't put it into the law. This is a value judgment and a value judgment alone. We try to be persuasive. I'll totally take that point. I, I was thinking more in terms of putting it into the law, like putting our value judgments into the law, I think is the wrong thing to do. But voicing our value judgments and people are free to completely disagree with them. That's what freedom is about, right? That's what that's what people disagreeing is about. So we all have our own opinions about how people should live. We all ingest things that aren't just for the health of it, right? So we ingest things that are uh, maybe dangerous or might even shorten our lives. But this is the nature of a free society. This is the nature of owning yourself. I think Julio and I just may have been musing on our value judgments, how funny and ironic it is that folks who want to keep this stuff in the black market are having the opposite effect. But Julio, what are your thoughts, man? I just wanted to add something, and I totally agree with what you were saying. I think that uh, I, I like Frederick Bastiat because he had this way of understanding what you see and what you not you don't see. And I think uh, under that idea, you can see, yeah, when you forbid marijuana, you're not only putting into jail all these people, creating all uh, like trying to pursue the seller or the entrepreneur that is trying to create his or her own business on drugs. But what you don't see is that first, you're putting a lot of people in jail and you're destroying an important pillar of society, which is family. So you're putting people in jail and you're 
not helping families that need their parents or, or need their complete family to grow and and, and properly show, uh, socialize their kids. So I think that's one of the things. The other thing that you're not seeing is that, as Milton Friedman used to say, uh, the 18-year-old or 25-year-old that is inhaling a line of cocaine, that person that knows what he's doing is not a victim, but this little kid in a marginal neighborhood that it that falls under this firearm because two gangs are trying to dispute the territory to sell drugs, that little girl is a victim. And mm -hmm. that's what we are seeing in Colombia. And that's why I see the problem. Like sometimes it's, it seems that the, the, like the only problem is the United States because um, for us in Colombia, it's pretty clear that if we legalize drugs, then we would lose the support of the United States. But it's also kind of a, a general uh, consensus because even Russia and China are pretty much comfortable with controlling some substances. And so we know this is something that it needs to happen, but it needs to happen not only uh, by Colombia or for Colombia, but also for the whole world. And for the whole world to understand that by creating black markets, what you are doing, it's creating the incentive for the worst kind of people, the people that are very accustomed to operate under under the shadows and and outside the law to enter this market. Because the incentive is to for all the people that are used to create to work outside the law to enter a market that it's outside the law. So that's why the worst kind of people, the more violent people, are the ones that are entering into the uh, drug market or the illegal drug market and this has to be really by necessity right because i mean think about alcohol for a moment if the miller guy and the budweiser guy get into some kind of dispute they don't get into a fight out in the street and with with guns going you know rounds going down range they go to court and they bring a lawsuit and they settle it in a in the manner that civilized people settle things but when you're in a black market you can't very well go to court and say, you know, I sold uh, 100 pounds of cocaine to somebody and he failed to pay me and I would like the court to cut an order that says he owes me money. And so by definition, by default, you wind up getting these uh, jobs of somebody becomes a collector and protector. And so you, by definition, you're injecting violence into this situation. And I don't know why people don't see this right now. I mean, I got into tons of debates with lots of people, some of them very formal and recorded and still on the internet, where people would tell me all the horrible things that would happen if we legalized marijuana. Well, now we're here. We've legalized marijuana and the sky didn't fall. It's sold peacefully in a dispensary with lots of information. The choices are broad. Now, you know, minors can't go in. There are certain things that are regulated. You know what you're buying. You can rely on advice from people. They're calling themselves bud tenders now. And so that's easy, right? This is an easy argument because I think it's very hard to make the argument that marijuana is harmful today. But what about, you know, cocaine, meth, heroin? Let's go to fentanyl. Though. Fentanyl. Does your position remain the same, Julio, regarding these other drugs? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, regarding this, like the main concern for me, it's what is going on right now in Colombia. And I think it has direct consequences on the rest of the continent. Uh, not only for all the drug deal that is happening in the, in, and entering to the United States and all the violence that maybe without knowing Colombia is exporting because all these illegal drugs, as we were discussing, creates the incentives for, for violence. 
so the main problem that we have in Colombia, it's cocaine. And as you were saying, one of the effects is the violence. The other effect is the consumer doesn't know what he or she is putting into their bodies. So that's also an, an additional problem for that. And what we are seeing right now in Colombia, it's that we, we can see it pretty clearly. When you put a map of Colombia and you locate all the municipalities where we have uh, co coca crops, and then you take the same map and you try to uh, identify all the places where homicides are happening, you are going to find that from the 1,100 municipalities that we have in Colombia, only 230 municipalities are focusing more than 80% of the violence. And when you go and see and check what is happening in those municipalities, you find that in those municipalities, you find three things. The first one, it's you're going to find coca crops. The second one, routes to export the coca. And the third one, uh, it's that you're going to find all these armed illegal groups like under any or, or a variety of ideologies, but especially under Marxist ideologies and also uh, other ideologies like these groups. The, the particular thing about these groups is that they are created and they quickly try to come up with a new ideology for them to justify their existence, their own existence. So I agree with that. Like the main problem that we have in Colombia and in Central America for all that matters is that coca or and cocaine, it's illegal. And we, we in Colombia, we have this legal consumption. It's, it's legal since, 19, since 1993. Uh, but the problem is that there's some hypocrisy in this measure because even though um, you can have legal consumption since 1993, you cannot have a legal production and legal commercialization or legal trade of, of these drugs. And so we, in Colombia, it's legal for the personal consumption. It's legal, uh, some like 23 grams of coca or, or cocaine, like uh, 20 grams of marijuana and some other grams of, of different drugs, including heroin. But the problem is that uh, you are creating the problem at the site or at the end of the production and the and the distribution of the drugs. So with legalization, what we what could happen is that okay, at the end of the of the consumer, when the prices fall, you could expect a little bit of a rise of the consumption, and that's something that needs to be discussed in a mature way. Like you need to be aware of that. But since the prices fall, like the economy theory tells us, then the, what we can expect is the number of producers are going to fall too, because not many producers are going to be um, able or are going to decide to enter into the market and try to sell it if it's not that profitable. Right. What we have right now is that it's very profitable and many people are want to enter into that market, but the government with the war on drugs, it's, what it's doing is destroying all the minor competitors and trying to assure these big cartels that already have the system, already have their influences with the state and with the local authorities for them to remain producing and commerce and trading with the drugs. So that's the main problem that I see in Colombia and also in, not only for Colombia, but also for Peru, Bolivia and Central, Central America too. And also Mexico, of course. You know, the other side of the economic equation is also true, right? So when the government has their big success and they go in and they seize a whole bunch of drugs and they arrest people and haul them off, I mean, it's not that confusing. What they've done is decreased the supply of the drug 
and the demand stays the same. So when the demand stays the same and the supply decreases, what happens? The price goes up. Well, when the price goes up, you create a bigger incentive for other people to come into the market and sell their profit. And also, you know who cheers when this happens is all the other drug other dealers. Other drug dealers. They're yeah. sitting around with the stock that just went through the roof. Bad for the drug dealer who gets arrested and taken to jail. Great big celebration for all of the other drug dealers who just got richer by virtue of the supply being decreased. I don't know why we don't see this pattern. Yeah, back to something you were talking about earlier. Just to, some, For somebody who's represented a lot of drug dealers over the years, and I recently just concluded a big federal case that involved bringing drugs from across the border of Mexico. We're here in Arizona. They pay very much attention to who's getting popped and who's getting in trouble and members of rival gangs and who and what territory and everything like that. And uh, like you said earlier, Mark, nobody wants the drug war to continue more than the illegal drug dealers. Absolutely true. And I've also represented lots of clients. Um, who started out in the illegal drug business and then it got legalized. Marijuana, for example, got legalized and they decided they want to switch over and try to do it legally. And uh, I've had on multiple occasions clients tell me, oh man, this is just so much harder and like I just wish it was illegal again <laughs> because it was just much easier to you know clean up and everything like that and you could just steal um, drugs from other people and there's no recourse that they have. We've, re- we've represented many... Um, People, there was a homicide case that we worked on together where it was a drug deal gone wrong, where the idea of this group was that they would go around and they would kick in doors of other illegal drug dealers, knowing that they had no recourse to go to the police, grabbed as much as they could, engaged in as much violence and theft and aggression as they could, were incentivized by the market to do that, and just went and did the next thing. Yeah, and I also think it's crazy that... You know, people want to blame guns, for example, for the violence that happened with guns. And I always like to point them to Mexico, right? I mean, I don't know if guns are entirely 100% completely banned in Mexico, but something pretty close to that for sure. Why is it that Mexico is replete with gun violence? It's because, as Julio was saying, they're replete with drug activity in cartels, in gangs, and they have to use guns for violence. There's no other option because you can't go to court. So I don't know how, uh, how lo- much longer we're going to keep banging our heads against this wall, like Julio was saying, destroying families, packing the prisons filled with people, spending huge amounts of cost. When I, recent, when I wrote this article, it wasn't recent, it was probably a decade or a decade and a half ago, it was, I looked at the stats and it was $69 billion spent on the drug war. Imagine what we could do with that money in some other forum. So it just, it's hard. We don't even hardly have these conversations anymore because for us, it seems like it's a foregone conclusion that everybody should understand that what we're doing with the drug war is flat out the wrong thing. But yet, this isn't the case. We're not even, marijuana is not even off the schedule one list for the feds, feds right now. Still completely illegal in the United States under federal law. And that's just marijuana. We haven't even talked about all the other drugs is that need to be taken off of 
uh, these various schedules and let people be free to decide for themselves what they put in their own bodies. Well, let's try to be as productive as possible here and bridge the gap, because I think I know why the average person doesn't understand or doesn't embrace these principles, these freedom principles, and I know why that a black market still exists for this stuff. And it goes back to that conversation that made you a little bit uncomfortable earlier, Mark, which is that people are looking at the bottom line, and the bottom line is something that they're scared of and don't like, and then they believe a narrative told to them by a government agency or power saying, the only way to stop this and to avoid this horrendous number of casualties and deaths, the only way to stop it is we've got to continue this drug. We, right. we have to ramp it up. Yeah, we got to go and kick in more doors. You're right about that. But the reason they're thinking down there was because we haven't sold them on the underlying principle. It would be great if we could just walk in and say, look, you're a competent adult. Well, you're in charge of what goes in your body. We recommend you don't put cocaine or meth or fentanyl, but hey, it's up to you. And by the way, you're going to be stuck with the consequences. See, the problem with that is, and Julio, I want to get your take on this. The disconnect for the average person. It just doesn't seem intuitive that yeah. saying by legalizing it and making it more widely available to competent adults who wants it, this is somehow going to make the amount of deaths go down that you're scared of. Um, Julio, how do how do we bridge that gap for the average person? Well, I, I think it's very difficult, but I, I think just as the United States uh, faced all the problem with the prohibition of alcohol in the 30s, I think that's one of the ways, maybe this way, like having open discussions and trying to talk with people. Uh, I've been trying to focus most of my research on the on unintended consequences of the prohibition of drugs, especially regarding the Colombian armed conflict. So one of the things that we saw in Colombia, it's the, and it's funny because it's even the United States trying to fit their own enemies. Because uh, in Colombia, as you may know, we have this guerrilla that it's called the FARC group which is a Marxist guerrilla. And during the 80s, they had only uh, around 1,200 men in arms. Then when the prohibition started with Nixon, uh, they made the decision, the open decision, uh, the FARC group, to enter into the drug market and, uh, and into the drug business. And they became the main cartel. So they went from having around 1,200 men in arms in the uh, in the early 80s, up to having more than 25,000 men in arms in the early 2000s. So this was this Marxist guerrilla. Most of their profits were coming from uh, the illegal drug business. And the reason, as I was saying at the beginning, the reason why this was very profitable, it was because it was forbidden. And that's how they managed to create such a big problem in Colombia. And on the one hand, they created the problem, they fed, they ended up, I mean, the United States with this policy ended up feeding the, the enemy because it was a Marxist guerrilla. And on the other hand, they also ended up making more weak the Colombian state, which is like, you may not like it, but it's a democracy and it's a liberal democracy. Like you can make some choices and you are not forced to make, uh, to, to use your property uh, as the whim of the authoritarian government. It's a democracy and people have the opportunity to decide who are their leaders. And that's something very important because it's not the same thing to have a, a strengthened Marxist guerrilla or a, a Marxist in power, or this is at least the way that I see it. It's not the same thing to have something that doesn't believe in, in freedom, in power, than having someone that believes in, free, in freedom with power. And that's a 
big distinction that we have in Colombia. So when you see the territory, and as Mark was saying, with the whole homicides thing, is that they come up with these measures. Let's forbid people to have uh, firearms. And like people think that if you put it in a law, then it's going to become reality. And it, it doesn't work like that. What happened is that you are going to have, you are going to keep the arms in the people that are not, uh, th that are not following the law. They are going to keep their arms, but you are disarming all the people that need the arms to defend from these other people that are going to it keep their arms. It seems so obvious so, at this point. Yeah. And so when you see in Colombia and, and in the, like you were mentioning Mexico, in the specific example of Bogota, the capital of Colombia, you can see it. Uh, so we have 20 localities, which is our 20 big neighborhoods in this city of more than nine, 9 million people. And some localities, some, some of these neighborhoods, of these 20 neighborhoods, focus more than 90% of the violence. So while you have the police very busy uh, trying to confiscate the, the weapons and the firearms of the people in the north part of the city, the extreme north part of the city, uh, the homicides are happening miles away from that point. They are happening uh, in the most extreme part south of the city. So you're not only um, um, wasting all the public resources, you're also uh, disarming the people, the good people that are trying to defend themselves. And you're sending a message to society that it's bad for you to protect yourself and protect your family and protect your property which is a horrible message to send. And at the end, you're not solving the problem. You're only creating a new one. Any uh, other topics you want to cover today, Mark? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I we, think we're all in agreement on these topics. Right? Yeah, I think so too. So Julio, wh what is it you want people in the United States to know about what's going on in Colombia? So we had this recent peace agreements uh, signed and it was supported by the Obama administration. And in my perspective, and we are seeing it right now, it was a big mistake because uh, we had the FARC guerrilla in 2016. They were the main cartel. They were the main exporters of coca. And what what the peace agreement did was just removing some of the heads of this organization. They enter into Congress. And now we have, it's like you had Al-Qaeda, you had a peace process with Al-Qaeda and you had members of Al-Qaeda sitting in the Congress of the United States, which is something that it's unbelievable. And people thought that, okay, we're going to put it in a law and it's going to become reality because that's how world uh, works. So people were expecting that because they signed the agreement, then we were going to have peace in Colombia. What we had actually was a race in the homicides and we have more violence now than we had before signing the agreement. And the reason is that uh, so you broke the structure of the FARC group and you created these mini FARC groups trying to dispute the territory with the, with the strongest groups, uh, on the small ones and creating a new guerrilla that now controls mo most of the drug trafficking. So we have, uh, we went from having around 24 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants in 2016 to almost 28 homicides per 100,000 inhabitants right now. We have more violence now than in 2013 when the peace agreement and the peace negotiations began. So I, I just want to say that um, it would be good for us if people from the United States uh, understood that 
it, it is okay to have, as, as, as you were saying also, a moral judgment on, on how you could live your life or how you could live up to your potentiality and how you can have a healthy life. It is okay. It's good. It's, it's healthy for society to have those standards. But the problem is that when you put some of the judgment that you have into the law, what you are going to create is an unintended consequences. And some of the unintended consequences is what we are experiencing right now in Colombia, that it's a higher homicides rate, more violence, and all the problems that we had, the guerrilla groups, the paramilitary groups, the Cartel de Medellin, which is the Pablo Escobar cartel, uh, all those uh, all those gangsters, all those guerrillas, all those armed groups were funding their bombs, their weapons, their mines, and everything with the money of cocaine. And it was only profitable because it was illegal. And that's the reason why we need to legalize drugs. That's the reason. What's the libertarian movement look like over there in Colombia? We know you were involved in it. Well, uh, we were growing very fast. And right now, it, it's been kind of, well, I've been away from Colombia for three years now. Uh, so the first big, uh, big try that we did was to get to the mayorship of Bogota, uh, Daniel Reisdek, which is this important libertarian that we have in Colombia and in Latin America. Uh, he ran for the mayorship and we got to get like all, uh, if I'm not wrong, 30,000 votes, which was very impressive because it was the first time that our, a libertarian organization was trying to pursue a public office. And um, after that, we created the libertarian movement officially. And we, what the first goal of us was to try to create conscience and try to come up with this agenda. And now, well, they are trying to organize organize themselves because I'm, I've been away, as I was saying. But what they are trying is to organize themselves to have some uh, place in the debate for the 2022 elections, which are happening in May this year. So that's what is going on with the libertarian movement. There are a lot of other organizations that are trying to come up with more um, discussion and trying to come up with candidates to occupy public offices. Uh, but... I don't know. Sometimes I, I believe that yeah, maybe there are some people that follow Hayek and some people that follow Rothbard, some people that believe that you need a libertarian movement and a libertarian pol uh, political party. And there are some people that believe that only by sharing the ideas and trying to create conscience and awareness, you're going to manage to uh, stop the state or at least stop the advancement when they are, yeah, when they are trumping on people's freedom. So I believe we have both things right now going on in Colombia, the people that want to occupy public offices and the people that just want to create conscience to, uh, by writing or publishing books or, or working with editorials, and etc. You know, you mentioned something earlier that really got me thinking. You fear that if Colombia does the right thing and legalizes drugs um, and legalizes cocaine manufacture, for example, totally decriminalizes it, that your concern is that we're, you're going to lose the support of the United States. And it, in fact, it's almost inevitable. First of all, what do you think Colombia stands to lose if they were to do that? And second of all, is it worth it? Would, would Colombia be able to survive without the support of the United States uh, on the world stage? What are your thoughts? I'm afraid that the, the main problem that could happen would be lose the support, meaning two things. The first one is that this is something that I believe is happening right now in Latin America. And it's something that most people are not discussing. It's that we are living kind of a 
miniature version of a Cold War. So we have Cuba and Venezuela trying to influence our democratic process and trying to create a very similar government to the one that they have. So losing the support of the United States would mean that uh, Venezuela and Cuba would have the free way for them to keep influencing that. And they are aligned and they are um, they, they, they collaborate with the illegal groups that are, we are facing in Colombia, meaning the ELN and the FARC group that still remains a big actor in the, in the Colombian violence. So that would be the first consequences, to be open and more vulnerable for the influence of Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and other left, extreme left-leaning governments that really want to see democracy over in Colombia and the liberal democracy that we have. And the second thing that we would lose, and I think that's something that we could also facilitate this big influence of, of Venezuela and Cuba, would be all the economic development that we have by trading with the United States. Mm. So the United States is the main partner for us. And if we lose the opportunity to export our products and also import all the things that we need for the economic development and the transformation of our industries to make them more productive, then it would mean eventually that we, we would have more poverty and then a the perfect situation for Venezuela to enter and say that capitalism has failed and we need to create a socialist mm -hmm. like uh, authoritarian governments. So I'm, I'm afraid of those two things. Well, if those two things are true, then the ball's not in Colombia's court right now, is it? It sounds like that's a non-issue if that's in fact true and that the ball's in the United States' court right now to do the right thing. Yeah, what, that... a, what a shame. The U.S. is the problem here. Yeah. And I think the same is true in several countries. Is that is that your opinion as well, Julio? Well, I really admire the United States as the project, the, the big nation that you guys became. Yeah, I'm not talking about the, the entire project that is the United States. I'm talking about the policy as to drugs and how it relates to other countries. Yeah, what you just described, if true, if what you just described was true, that if you guys do the right thing and completely decriminalize these drugs and it leads to your downfall economically, culturally, everything like that, that's a non-issue in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah. well— like I, I was saying, I admire the United States, but I, I'm totally, I totally disagree with this poly, policy, the drug policy. It's fatal for Colombia. It's been a very, um, it, it has affected our democracy because one of the problems that we face is that because it's very profitable, they even have the resources to fund their own candidates and to influence these, these gangs and these guerrilla groups to influence the democratic institutions that we have. So that's something that is playing against the best interest of the even the United States, because they even the, the foreign policy of the, the United States would be, I, I would say maybe ideally would be to have the most democratic governments all over the region. But what is going on is that with this policy, they are actually contributing to have uh, the worst people in charge, the worst people with power and the worst people with money. Because I was always saying the incentive is it's if you have this illegal market, then you're going to create the incentive for the people that are used to not uh, following the law to enter into this market. And that's what, what is going on. All right. Well, we've reached the end of our time, but uh, Julia wanted to give you an opportunity to plug anything that you want to plug right now. Are you working on any projects, websites, podcasts, anything at all you want to talk about? Go for it. 
Uh, well, I'm actually writing a book about uh, what is going on right now in Colombia, and that's something that I'm very interested in. I believe one of the problems with criminology, I studied the, my, my last master's degree was in criminology, and I believe one of the problems is that uh, most, or at least of the things that I read, the literature that I read for criminology, most of the problems is that they do not connect the part when a economic problem, which is having a gang, becomes a political problem, which is having this big army of people funded by drugs. Uh, so I'm trying to fill that gap with this book that I'm writing, and I hope to have it ready, I don't know, maybe by next year, hopefully. So yeah, that's something that I will be interested in talking yeah. about. When you, get, when you get closer to finishing that project, we need to have you back on the podcast so we can plug it properly and get you some sales. Thank you so much. That's that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. This has been Attorney Andy Markintel and Attorney Mark J. Victor. Check out this podcast and many more at liveandletlive.org. There you will find a lot of great information about the movement and ways that you can get involved. Start a chapter near you. Uh, today we're filming this on Martin Luther King Day, and one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King's uh, letter from Birmingham Jail, which is a literary masterpiece in my view, um, is that uh, it's it's a recognition, as he says, that the opposite of hate is not love, it's indifference. It's mm. the people who sit on the sidelines knowing about the problems, sit idly, and don't get involved when they know there's a problem. Well, friends, don't be the opposite of love. Get involved. Be the purpose of peace. Start a chapter near you. Tell people about it. Get talking about it. When you see things that are wrong with the world, don't just grumble about it and gripe. Get up and do something about it. And this movement is a great way to get involved and do just that. So go to liveandletlive.org. We are also a 501c3 charity. Make a tax-deductible donation today. And there's lots of other great ways to get involved as well. So until next time, my friends, we want to give a special thanks to our guest, Julio Mejia, for appearing on the podcast. This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.